Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. Coming to you from my house in Los Angeles, California, and the guest on the podcast today is a newly transplanted Nashville guy here in L.A., like myself, even though he's originally from here. This guy and I have always been aware of each other, and I've been a big fan of him back in Nashville. Uh, he just brought a lot of soul and a lot of originality and taste to a lot of modern country gigs, among other things. Uh, but now he's holding down two of the biggest female singer gig, arguably, in the world. And he's also a daytime television bass player, only about 60 episodes into this new gig. So obviously so much to ask about, both about his new life out here and his new gigs and about coming up in Nashville uh, during a time where we were sort of there at the same time. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. Kyle Whalem. We're back here with the Lowdown Society in uh, Los Angeles, California. And we are here with Kyle Whalem. How are you, man? Yo, yo, yo. Good, man. Blessed. Good to be here. Yeah. We uh, we have kids running around. <laughs> you, yeah, you're going to hear lots of my family. <laughs> and uh, right before I turned the, the recorder on, we were just talking about, hey, I'm not going to lie to you. You said, when I'm when I'm not working, I'm not playing bass. And yeah. it's very easy to see why. Totally. I mean, I think for a lot of us, too, it's like we spent so much time in the damn practice room, you know, like... From the time I was 14 when I picked it up until, you know, freshman year of college, like, is a blur. I remember, I know I had two girlfriends. I don't know how much time they got with me, but all I was doing was learning Teen Town and obsessing about Jocko and, you know, Victor uh, Wooten and all that stuff. So, like, I like to think I front-loaded a lot of that. And, yes, I do want to practice more. I think that's – my dad still practices, like, two hours a day. So, you know, his kids are out of the house and blah, blah, blah. So I hope when I'm older – Maybe I'll get that urge to to go in a little harder with the practice. Well, I find as a freelance musician, when you have a lot of work, you tend to not practice much because you play so much. Absolutely. And then when you have a slower period, business wise, you you take that as as unpaid practice. Time, right. You know. Right. Absolutely. At least for me, it's it's been like that. Totally. No. Anytime I do pick it up on a whim, yeah, it's during which I don't have anymore, which is not this is a bad thing, but you know I'm busy, uh, which is a blessing, but like. Yeah, if I ever have like two months where I'm not touring or playing anything, then I was like, I might pick up the bass and start exploring on it like I did when I was a kid. Rawr. Are you a monster? So <laughs> My wife's laughing. Um, yeah, so I think for me, we were also talking about, uh, you know, ADHD for, for me has been a thing that has come in and out of my life, uh, my whole career. And I've been in denial about it. And even though I've been diagnosed... <laughs> I shouldn't be really in denial about it, but you, you tend to kind of reason your way out of it. But for me, uh, even early on with practicing, like I noticed if someone told me I had to practice something, the results were not as good as if I was allowed to just explore the instrument just playing, like literally the definition of the word, you know, the phrase to play music. I'd just be up in my room for hours just coming up with stuff and techniques I wanted to use. And like I still use a lot of that stuff, so... It's hard to say what was more valuable. I think some of the exercises and stuff uh, have come in handy as well, the dexterity and stuff. But, like, the way I play is so um, visual in my head. I'm thinking of shapes. Uh, I have synesthesia which as well, kind of a mild form of it, but it's synesthesia is like any cross-wiring of um, senses. So some people can, like, hear music and they smell. And I've had this happen to me where you, you hear a note and you can, like, faintly smell a food or something like oh, ah. it's peanut butter you know yeah, what i mean yeah for the most part for me it's uh, uh letters numbers uh have a color association that's consistent it's been consistent my whole life i didn't learn about that until i was in my 20s either but um when i play i'm thinking about a lot of that stuff i'm thinking about shapes and colors a lot and those are probably things that i picked up in my practice room just exploring on my own you know like getting in tune with my own sense of musicality so when, even when I do teach, and I love teaching, by the way, I, I try to, I try to pay attention for little cues like that. If someone learns differently, maybe we could steer it that direction. Because I just remember playing. Uh, my first instrument was violin. I hated it. Oh my god, I hated it so much. Uh, even now, like if someone asked me to to play arco on a bass, I'm just like, ugh. Um, and it was for that reason. It was the Suzuki method, which was very structured and like, do you, did you you familiar with Suzuki? Yeah. And uh, 
you know, God bless my dad got me into it, and I'm glad that I, I'm glad he that was my introduction to music because once I figured out what I like to do on it, I had a lot of fun, which was basically just you know, messing around in my room. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. Uh, I usually start backwards on these podcasts. I ask people about the gig they have now, and I walk mm. my way work my way backwards. But you mentioned your dad practicing two hours a day, so yeah. that is a good lead into like you do come from a musical family for sure. And so uh, would you mind just letting people quickly know how, how that has translated into to you, yeah. like cho choosing bass as an instrument and choosing music or not choosing music, just right. getting handed music spiritually? Man. Yeah, that's that's a good good way to describe it. In my case, uh, so my dad is a, a very successful saxophone player, tenor player, although he plays all the horns. Um, tenor's a strong suit, uh, soprano. He dabbles in alto and, and berry, but... Um, I, uh, um, yeah, growing up, he was just kind of the man, like, right? He was doing all these A-list sessions and Celine Dion and Whitney Houston and, and Barbara Streisand and Luther Vandross and, like, you know, 80s, 90s. There's almost no one at the top of the game that he didn't play with or have some interaction with. So growing up in that environment, like, me being seven or eight, I was like, music's the last thing I'm thinking about doing because he's, clearly, he's got that sewed up. He's very good at it. Um, so for me, I got into visual art was the first thing, uh, was drawing, painting, and then I got into animation. Uh, and it wasn't until we moved to Nashville in, in 1996 and Nashville in 1996 was a very, very different place than it is now. Now it's like this cultural it city and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's getting better, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> certainly there was no animation classes that I could go to as yeah. a 12 yeah. year old. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of in a creative desert, I felt. And that's right when I got into uh, Jimi Hendrix. My dad kind of showed me this Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> My daughter's listening to Trolls. Um, so, <laughs> knock, knock me over. Oh, you get back up again. Something tells me you know this song really oh, well by dude. now. <laughs> I, hear, I hear it in my sleep. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I... Uh, it It was basically out of necessity. So my dad hit me to Jimi Hendrix and... I just thought, like, my mind was blown at, at uh, just the textures, the colors of it, the sonics. And then it dawned on me, like, this is a black dude. And, I, you know, you already have that association with someone like Jimi Hendrix being, like, the archetype of what a rock star is. It's a black dude. I thought that was so cool because I grew up surrounded by white culture, skateboarding, you know, rock and roll music. And so for me, it was like, huh, check that out, you know, and, like, uh, from there, I tried to play drums, um, and we lived in an apartment at the time. So that wasn't really going to work out. And I played guitar because I like Jimi Hendrix. That's was probably my second real instrument. I still play a little guitar, but uh, I found that bass just sat kind of right in between drums and guitar, and it was like still very rhythmic. And I picked up the bass guitar, and it was just uh, so natural. I'd never remembered ever having to learn it. Like I literally don't have a memory of like oh, I can't play this. Like it yeah. just felt fell into my hands um that's a really long way of saying that yeah i have an extremely musical family so uh it's my dad um and this actually this goes back generations to like um the uh morehouse uh, i want to say glee club uh my great great uncle wendell who, who my daughter's named after mm -hmm. uh i, I want to say like early 20th century was a, a composer and choral arranger I have an uncle named Peanuts that's a, he's in his 80s now, and he's a jazz singer, a pianist, saxophone player. He play, He's one of those guys that plays everything. He's like a quintuple threat. Yeah. Pretty brilliant dude. And that goes on to my dad. My cousins, uh, Cameron, uh, has been playing with Bruno Mars for the last 10 years. That was his first gig straight out of school, which is kind of nuts. Uh, my cousin Kenneth has played with everyone, Jay-Z, Beyonce, D'Angelo, um, I could go on and on. And he, Kenneth is also doing a, a really, uh, just a really deep and uh, uh, high quality solo solo uh, uh, path. Mm -hmm. And so he's put out, he has his third record coming out soon. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of music in the family. And again, I, I tried so hard to uh, not go on that path and it just kind of grabbed me. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I found in my life, uh, over and over again, the thing I say I'm never going to do is exactly what, what I end up doing. Oh, I'm never going to play music like my dad. Okay, well, bass is cool. 
and then I'll never, you know, play jazz. And then I got into Jocko in, in high school, and that was over. And then I'll never sing. And then I got in rock bands. And then you fast forward 15 years later, I'm, I'm singing lead in a rock band while playing bass, you know, uh, doing the Thin Lizzy thing. So, yeah, I've learned to kind of stop doing that. I'll never do this. I'll never do that because you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I was, uh, I was listening to a famous Israeli motivational speaker oh. uh, recently in Europe, and uh, he was saying, you know, you hear all these over here. We hear a lot of you have to really uh, put something out in the universe and speak about it and manifest it for right. it to happen. And he said, if you keep thinking and keep talking about wanting to be in a relationship, you won't be in one. Right. So he, his, he was the other way around. Interesting. He was he was he was basically laying out the theory that you sort of confirmed with stuff that's happened in your life. The yeah. stuff you said you wouldn't do is what went and grabbed you and said, look. Yeah universe goes you're wrong i'm yeah. i'm in charge yeah that's that's a trip it's a, almost a way of humbling you yeah you know what i mean which uh i'm sure we'll get into this later in the, the podcast too but i'm i'm also my other passion is uh the outdoors and mountain trail running and ultra marathon running and that kind of stuff and a big part of that whole thing is uh the, the need to be humbled or to at least kind of balance the scale if i get off stage with kelly clarkson or or katie perry or something like you can, it's easy to go down this path of like, ah, you know, like, and I love, uh, I love going to the mountains and running and stuff because it, you feel so small and it's so dangerous and there's bears and wild, literally bears and mountain lions out here, you know? Yeah. I, it, I think we can hop on that right away, actually. Yeah. We were just talking about social media before we started the recorder and mm. you were saying, hey, my, my Instagram and stuff is more running than it is bass, or yeah. <laughs> I don't promote the bass because you know you work right. And and so I think all of us musicians that have known about you or known you for many years have really. Uh, I I certainly enjoy stopping my Instagram mm. scrolling and and looking at your running stuff. Oh, that's cool. So why don't we stop there and just tell us about it and tell us how that's such a big part of of your life and how both mentally and physically yeah. you take the lessons you learn there into your your job. Oh man, absolutely. Uh there is such uh there's such a heavy correlation between the two that that's probably why I can't seem to stop doing it, you mm -hmm. know. So running is a practice for me. I dabbled in it when I was a kid. My dad was a big jogger. Again, another thing. I'll never look like this idiot with the high shorts and you know what I mean? Like and here I am, dad with the high shorts. Uh yeah, I dabbled in that when I was a kid around 12. Because I was getting kind of my my genetics are kind of chubby, mm -hmm. and so uh, you know on and on uh, on and off again in my in my um, life it's been something I would go to to kind of for weight management right, mm -hmm. and I hated it at first and then somewhere in my twenties like oh I I, uh, I I had a stupid incident at a party where uh, and I like to tell people different stories if they ever asked about it because it's not the coolest way to get injured. Uh, I'll say something like, oh, I was skateboarding, man, you know, or <laughs> or I fell off the stage, but I was at a party, and I uh, I did, like, it was like a dumb party stunt, like, hey, look at me, and I, like, jumped off this porch thing. It's a long story. And I broke my uh, right ankle really bad. It was turned, like, 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, one of those... It was, As a young adult, it was my first real taste of, like, dude, there are consequences to everything you do. So I'm doing... I'm, I was living a, a pretty he uh, heavy party lifestyle at that point, and I wasn't exercising at all. Uh, I get injured, so I'm on my butt for a year. You know, I'm on tour, sitting in chairs and in a wheelchair and all that stuff, crutches, and just feeling like such a POS, you know. Do you curse on your podcast? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Such a piece of shit. <laughs> and uh, um, th what that did for me was over the course of that year, it uh, taught me that I had really taken, my whole life I'd taken my mobility for granted, you know, and that maybe that's like something that doesn't dawn on many people until they're in you know in their 20s that might be sort of a natural progression but i certainly was like man i have this totally healthy body i never get sick you know i'm actually just getting over some allergies right now and it happens maybe once a year i get sniffles but i never get sick knock on wood um and i got this healthy body and all i'm doing is like pouring booze down it and smoking cigarettes and you know sitting on my butt and so over the course of that year i started to uh really fantasize about getting out and running again because like to me that would represent a full recovery in fact coming back a little wiser for having ha done this stupid thing um that happened when i was 24 when i was 25 i started jogging again slowly uh and then i signed up 
I was at a bar bragging about how I ran three miles down the street the other day, and uh, and then I found out about five Ks, and there was a five K at the Nashville Zoo, and so I kind of tipsily, oh well, I, I can run that. I do that every day. So I ran a five K, and from then from there I got into half marathoning, the the full marathon, you know, which was the in the you know mid two thousands as far as I knew that was the human limit of physical endurance. And so I did three marathons and then I started to hear about this thing called an ultra marathon. And I'm like, it just didn't even compute. I, I saw a YouTube video of this guy in the middle of running a hundred miles in the mountains, like off road through elements and weather. And, and he was shirtless. He had long hair and it, he just looked like a, a, a very primal, peaceful type of person. And I, I uh, I was like, I want whatever that is, you know what I mean? And like a lot of us, I, I have a totally addictive personality. And so once I knew this was possible, it was really only a matter of time before I wanted to try to run uh, the ultras, which are anything longer than a marathon. It could The uh, 50K is the first real distance, uh, so that's 31 miles. 50 miles is kind of considered the mid-distance of ultra running. 100K is 62 miles. That's your first taste of like maybe you're running into the night or starting out with a headlamp in the morning kind of thing. And then the 100 miler, until a few years ago, was really considered, they call it the big dance. Like, you know, it's at least 24 hours of pure running in the mountains, uh, in the dark for a lot of it. Um, you're encountering wildlife, you're shitting on the trail. I mean, it's really raw. And then now there's these things, uh, these 200 milers are starting to be really popular. And so that is more of like, a hybrid of a uh, hundred mile racing mixed with like what it's like to do a through hike of a trail. Like, you know, the Arizona trail, you do the whole thing. Um, so those 200 milers often take exponentially longer than just, you know, so a hundred miler takes a lot of people one day. The 200 milers can take five, six days easy. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. So yeah, I, I got into endurance athletics and I, really, really enjoy the, um, just the dichotomy between the ego and what I do with music. Uh, and you know, do you know Ben Gibbard from, uh, uh, Death Cab for Cutie? I do not know him, no. He's the lead singer and we, he's very similar to a lot of us, total addictive personality. I think he kind of got sober and got into running and he's another musician that runs hundred mile ultra marathons and stuff. But he said the same thing, which is that everywhere else in the world, he's, you know, this rock star dude, uh, and then when he gets on a, a, a trail in the mountains, he's just a person, you know? I got to sneeze, sorry. <coughs> um, yeah, I was just getting over these allergies. I never get sick. Uh, uh, and he talks about how it's a really cool, um, you know, dynamic between uh, what your ego does when you're on stage and what you need it to do. Like, there's a healthy place for your ego to be kind of at the forefront. And I think when you're taking a big solo at an arena and, and your artist is looking over at you and going like, give it up for Kyle Whalum, you know, like that's a healthy place to, to kind of summon all that stuff. That's what people pay money to see. You don't want to be like, Oh, thank you so much. I've had to learn that actually. Like that's the place for it. When you get on the trail or uh, out in the mountains in the woods, um, it's so humbling because it's so dangerous. Like, it's dangerous. It's arduous. You don't always feel like you're killing this. In fact, you rarely do. You know what I mean? Um, it's just taught me a lot. Like, uh, again, focus is something I've struggled with. When you're trail running, uh, you have it's imperative that you are focused and you're mindful of the exact moment you're in, like every step. Because, like, I got a wife and kids. I was out this morning on a mountain, uh, Strawberry Peak, which is in the San Gabriels here, and it's uh, it's actually covered in snow. I'll show you. Uh, pictures later but um you know and I'm out there alone there are bears and cats and you know you're up at six you're over a mile high and there's no cell phone service and so you know you really have to be mindful of like especially like when I was coming down every step I'm thinking you got to protect your hands because you need you know to feed your family and you got to make it back to your car in one piece so you can get home to your family and so it's all like it's just a cool exercise in focus and, and mindfulness combined with the breath and meditation. And I love it, man. It's hugely addictive. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to oh, go yeah. so deep in that, man. But like I said, for any of us that follows you, yeah. it's just great when you see a musician whose life is very much sort of 
successful in that era it mm. seems like all your focus goes somewhere else as soon as you're not working you know yeah you, yeah and and uh it's really inspiring stuff actually that can be it can be good and bad yeah like, i mean i i run eight miles at a time but i also use hocus so we got that in common yeah i love yeah. hocus man yeah yeah oh we need to talk about that later yeah uh yeah yeah no i mean i think if i didn't have you know there are people that uh i certainly would i've noticed if i post a, a picture with you know, me playing with Kelly, me playing with Katie, or me doing anything in music, a lot of times that'll get the most likes. I'm like, okay, sure, I get that. You know what I mean? It's To a lot of people, that's an objectively cooler, but I've always strived to really have a, uh, an authentic life, and I want that to translate into whatever social media presence I have. It's just, you know, I could probably have more bass deals and more gear and blah, 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 but like, I'm proud of the gear I have, but I, it's just not where I'm at. I really like to just, this is what I'm doing. This is yeah. me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting. You're saying so many interesting things, and and full on ADHD style. My head is full of follow up questions. This but, is bad. Two ADHD dudes. Yeah, but, drinking coffee. <laughs> but I'm sh- I'm sure that's common when musicians hang out. Quite oh, frankly. Oh yeah, yeah. But you said a few things. First of all, I want to bring it back to Nashville in 1996. Mm. The 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 lack of musical and cultural diversity, oh. and the and and how you sort of. That was interesting to me. Mm. And also, you said you were lead singing and playing bass in a rock band, which I had no clue about. Mm-hmm. And we, we've always been pretty aware of each other right, back in Nashville. Right. And you mentioned Thin Lizzy, and that's literally, I, I, I get soft-hearted <laughs> when that gets mentioned. So yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what was the deal there? Was that something you're like, oh, there's nothing like this in Nashville, I want to do this? Or Man, it, it happened so organically. It was my buddy Tyler Kane and I. Mm-hmm. At first, we had this really quirky indie duo called Tyler and Kyle that we both kind of cringe a little bit about when we think it's like two buddies you know we had matching scooters we were driving around like remember when Vespas came back oh you were pre-hipster hipster yeah yeah I don't know what what we were we were drunk a lot is what we were and high a lot (laughs) but uh yeah we started a duo and then years down the road we we kind of uh we renamed it the Waylon Canes and we invited in our our buddy Justin Meeks on drums a great drummer and so, yeah, we were doing the three-piece garage rock thing. It was really, really fun. I would say towards the end of that, I, any given set, I was starting to sing maybe 60% of it, 70% of it. Mm-hmm. Tyler's a fantastic singer and artist, and we did a lot of the writing together. But um, I don't know. I, I, by the end of it, I really got into that whole thing. I love Thin Lizzy. I love um, – I, I don't know. I love singing rock music. There was a couple of, like, black uh, – I remember there's a band called Block Party – had a black lead singer that was really cool. I grew up on metal, so I remember Seven Dust. You know, I thought that was really cool. And, you know, while I'll be honest with you, race is not on my mind for most of the day. Every now and then I'm like, oh, that's kind of a space that is not being filled as much. So could be fun, you know. But yeah. as we were making that music and I was doing the band, it was a pure creative um, outlet. It wasn't, I, it wasn't pre-planned. I didn't have any sort of... In fact, that was the problem. We didn't have a plan for it at all. So. Yeah. We toured a little bit. We played like a few, you know, out of state gigs, and nobody came, and that whole that whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> but we were yeah we were around the Nashville scene. We were doing um, uh, you remember uh like when Jeremy Lister and uh, Lee Nash and uh, you remember got him Space Capone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Remember that whole funky scene? dude? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was bad. Dude. Aaron, uh, I forget his last name. Uh. But yeah, yeah, that whole scene, you know, we were we were definitely Nashville had this pre what it is now rock uh, indie rock scene, circa two thousand four through like two thousand ten. I would say for me, for a lot of us that are in our mid thirties, that was like a really special time. And then you know, Kings of Leon were out of Nashville, uh, Black Keys moved there. We had Jack White moved there. Paramore, I always Paramore say. from Franklin. Yeah, um, there was a couple others too, but. <clears throat> that was a time where a lot of labels were looking for the next Kings of Leon, and so there was this huge spike in, in interest in rock music there that uh, I'm sure is still going on. I'm just aged out because I have kids, and, and now I've physically moved, so yeah. I'm even further outside of it. But So, again, tying back to something you said before the recorder uh, was on, you were just telling me when we were in your kitchen that you were 
uh, even though you've been a successful session cat mm. in Nashville for, for years, you were getting, quote unquote, it sounds so douchey, but you were getting the upper echelon sessions at the time you left. I've, yeah, I, my, uh, Lester, uh, Kelly's drummer and I, we kind of joke about this a lot. Since he started the show, he's essentially, he said his session calls have slowed a little bit and he's trying to work on getting those back up because a lot of people perceive him as living out here mm-hmm. because he's here a lot. Yeah. <laughs> For the majority of the week, he's here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a weird time to leave because I was just starting to get calls and entering those uh, sort of a lists. Again, that sounds douchey, but uh, the kind of session calls that you when you started the instrument, you thought of, man, I would love to be in, you know, Ocean Way recording in the master room on a master, you know, session master scale. Yeah, I was starting to do those master scale things a few times a month, and it was starting to turn into more and more calls. And that's right when I when I left, of course. So uh, that. Let's talk about that decision or that how that process went down, especially since you have a, uh, I guess you can say, newer family, yeah. younger family. Yeah, we have a young family. Yeah. And uh, being from Nashville and having a, a, a lifetime of friends mm. and getting to that A-list level in your early 30s, yeah. which a lot of the session cats are you know, older. And, right, right. And so when this current opportunity came up, uh, was there ever any doubt or was it just like, nope, I'm doing it type of a thing? I would say probably the latter. Um, I think, and it, this, this is all so recent, you know, I moved here about four months ago. So mm-hmm. even though I'm actually originally from here, that's a whole nother story, but I, I grew up in South Pasadena before we moved to Nashville. Um, but uh, yeah, when I, when this was starting to be rumored, like, ah, yeah, Kelly's going to do a TV show. It was like, well, I've, I had always kind of, I don't have regrets in my life. I try not to live that way because everything leads you where you are. It's very cliche, but I think there's some truth in it. Um, in my case, uh, you know, the, if I did have regrets, one of them would have been that I didn't move to LA or New York when I was in my early twenties, like fresh out of college. Because, and the reason I say that is because I did a lot of lovely country sessions and country touring that I, that's invaluable to me. In fact, Lester Lester has also done a lot of that. Kelly's drummer, uh, and when when a country tune comes up on the show, it's funny because like the two brothers in the band are actually the the most versed in country music, experienced, country, right, yeah, right. Which we, we we get a total kick out of. But having said that, I didn't grow up with a farm or driving a John Deere, you know. So like for me, country was always uh, sort of a role I had to play. I felt it wasn't supernatural. I did genuinely enjoyed a lot of the music I played. Uh, especially the older, more more trad stuff, uh, but that was never really artistically my bag. I, I'm more of a Radiohead, Kendrick Lamar type dude, you know. Um, so yeah, the opportunity to move to LA with a job and with a good job and be able to kind of start there, I thought like, it, you know, if the universe isn't telling me to go, you know, I don't know when it's going to. And in fact, I, you know, you it would it would have been easier for me to sit back in Nashville and you know, um, be known as a guy that is on some A-list tours and blah, 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 like, and see what else came down the pike in Nashville, because it's a smaller pond. But I felt like the more challenging thing to do would be to move here as a newbie with a good gig, but like still a new guy to town and see what else happened. And the Katie thing happened right as I was moving here. And so I think that was another confirmation of like, okay, now if you don't, because that operation is based out of here as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, dude, if you don't go now like that that doesn't make any sense so it, to me it was a total i didn't even have to think about it really that's lovely so yeah. uh the kelly thing kelly clarkson if yeah. you, for people that aren't hip to uh the kelly thing it felt natural when i saw you were with her because yeah. she lives in nashville right and used to used to yeah mm-hmm. and she uh, she's always had a few band guys in and out of mm-hmm. that scene and you know then the the katie perry thing happened and yeah how, how did that come about that was a stepping stone right out of uh, Kelly. So mm-hmm. uh, it's funny because I remember driving around in Nashville. I actually remember being at the intersection of Wedgwood and 21st Avenue for you Nashville people. And I remember, I don't know how old Belmont. I was. Belmont. Yeah, yeah, but right around Belmont. Yeah. I remember hearing since you've been going on the radio and just thinking like, now that is the gig to get in this town. You know, like for me, I was like, that's the only big pop gig out of, at that time, you know, out of Nashville. And I was like, ah, man. And I kind of wrote it off like, ah, I don't get calls like that. You know what I mean? Like, 
And it was so surreal 10 years down the road or however long uh, to be getting that call. And the other one that I had thought the whole time, I'm a huge Katy Perry fan, so I had thought, well, that's just like way outside of, you know, any reality that I would find myself in. Well, it turns out we went on tour for Kelly's uh, Meaning of Life tour, and we actually ended up using, and I didn't know this until we kind of got rolling on the tour, but we brought on a lot of extra crew to help, um, and a lot of the crew that we brought on was from Katie's camp. And so I actually, that opportunity came up through some recommendations from the Meaning of Life tour, so they kind of one to each other. That's yeah. wonderful. Oh, and, dude, it worked out great. And you are, you have somehow, and you use. Uh, the term I think slightly stressful when we were inside earlier uh, but you have been able to juggle both yeah <laughs> that that I think is the question of the day that people might want to know I've lost some some years off my life trying to do it I think <laughs> I mean even as we're talking like I'm thinking about texts that I'm supposed to be getting today to confirm whether or not this thing has changed or blah 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 um, it is a lot one thing I will say is that uh, uh, Katie isn't in a touring pattern and that's hugely helpful. So Katie is doing select gigs when she wants to do them, because she's also on American Idol. Um, so there's a lot of sim- duality between Kelly and Katie. They're both doing their own TV shows. And so um, uh, it works. It so works out to where I'm doing the Kelly show as sort of a nine-to-five, right? And then Kelly still does – we still do privates, and we still do um, – uh, she's actually about to start a Vegas residency in in 2020, which I'm really hyped about. But – Right now, we're not like on tour either. So when Katie gets a thing in in Dubai, which actually is coming up, or India, like for the most part, I can, with the help of uh, a fill in, I can go do those and come back and plug back into the the nine to five uh, TV show thing. Um, and I try not to miss. Uh, I haven't missed any Kelly live performances yet, so that would be potentially a rub. Mm-hmm. But I just think like. Uh, Ultimately, at the end of the day, I really love both camps, and my my heart about it is very pure. I, it's not my goal to get over on anyone or anything like that. It's just while they're neither one of them are touring, I would love to be able to kind of to do uh, to both as, for as long as possible. I know it's it's uh, that's never going to work out long term. I don't think. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah. What would you say? I'm sure logistically, every camp operates differently mm-hmm. as far as travel and the overall vibe and all that, but. Since we're on a bass podcast, from a purely musician bass player standpoint, mm. what do you feel is the biggest difference? Both camps being fairly modern pop, right? Yeah, you know, and having I would assume a little bit of key bass, a lot of electric. Yep. What yep. what it, what is the main difference as far as your mind frame or as far as your gear, all yeah. that stuff between the two? They're actually quite different. Um, Kelly is uh, I w- I always consider Kelly like uh, no negative connotation, but the word diva she's actually the sweetest person she's the furthest thing from a diva you know with that connotation but uh in terms of she is a just born and bred singer she is just that's what she does she blows people's minds with her singing voice. machine singing right. machine right yeah. and so our our style in her band is is a lot more um of that it's a little less on the theatrics and it's more focus on pure music you know um which i love by the way it's super fun for us because it's uh, we can all run all over the stage. There's there's no dancers, that kind of thing. Um, with Katie, it's it's a little different in that it's uh, it is a it's sort of a big pop show with theatrics. And in fact, like I think Katie is one of the people. It's kind of the definition of a theatrical show, right? So it's really fun to go do that where you're wearing weird costumes and there's dancers all over the place and you're I'm on a tiny little riser just rocking out you know what I mean like I come off every once in a while but it's also really synth heavy on on Katie's side so I play bass probably half the set and the other half is pure synth mm-hmm. uh on Kelly I'd say I play synth maybe 20 or 30 percent of the set so it's a lot more uh uh just electric bass playing so as far as the synth rig on mm-hmm. both uh on both gigs I would assume uh, since both camps have been successful for a long time before mm-hmm. you, was mm-hmm. there from the MD? Was there was there pre-provided patches or use this board or here's a board that the camp owns? Or right. W- what what is your setup? Uh, on Katie, it was very much that it was like. In fact, I have yet to even bring in um, 
actually some some preamps and stuff that I do like to use. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about doing that soon of swapping. Okay, mm-hmm. I, this is more my flavor. I'd like to have that in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, Katie came up so quick that needed someone in like, I think I got a like, hey, this might be a thing like uh, two weeks from when I actually got the like, hey, we need you in four days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had four days to get her whole set together. And when I stepped in, it was uh, uh, my good buddy Josh. Uh, everything was left over from him. And he had decided to go, uh, he had been there for 12 years, I think, and had rightfully decided to go uh, do some other stuff. So, yeah, I pretty much stepped right into his setup. All the synth stuff comes from main stage. There's a genius named uh, Cole Gion that uh, is detects all the main stage rig and patch changes and all that stuff. I mean, literally, like, he's a genius. <laughs> I'm not very technically inclined, so what he does to me is is magic. Sorcery. <laughs> Sorcery, yeah, yeah, like literally. Yeah. So, so that one's pretty simple. With Kelly... Um, again, it's, it's a little more kind of like, uh, you got to keep in mind for the longest time, like Kelly, it was a pop rock gig and rock was a huge component of it. It still is, you know, but so a lot of it was coming from that kind of side of like, you know, amps on stage and, um, we've gone a little quieter with the stage, but I, I still keep an Aguilar rig back there. Whereas Katie's a totally quiet stage. Mm -hmm. Um, everything is kind of in the box as they say, uh, so yeah, Kelly and I picked um, my own analog synth for that. I use a, a, a Moog Sub Fatty that I really like. Mm-hmm. That I'm still just starting to get to know how to use. It's like all these dials and stuff. But yeah, um, yeah. So the Sub Fatty and I use my own pedal boards, all Aguilar stuff um, on on a Kelly set. So uh, since we're in the gear nerd land, that yeah, um, I don't do this often, so let's I, go. <laughs> I know, and that that way that way it's on record. So if people ask you, you get annoyed. You can just say, just "Well, reference, yeah. yeah, yeah." There it is. Um, I did see a post of your small pedal board for mm-hmm. the TV sh- show. I think mm-hmm. a while back. So the the difference from your TV board, because I assume again Kelly's live show is probably pop rock heavy, and on the mm-hmm. TV show, you know, I th- saw Garth Brooks was hanging out. Oh, we do everything day. on the TV show. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what's on your TV show board and why? Actually, the TV show board is so so far is much bigger than the uh, Kelly tour board. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, for Kelly tour, I use a two preamp, a noble pre, which I my goodness, we've, we've talked a lot about those. Oh, it's yeah. it's ubiquitous, it's become something I have to have. And noble, by the way, doesn't give uh endorsements, so that's coming purely from the heart. I just love the product. Um, so yeah, noble two pre. Uh, and uh, Aguilar Fuzz, Aguilar Distortion. On the show, it's a Noble 2 Pre, and then I use, I'll rotate, like, right now it's oct- uh, Octave Pedal, uh, Chorus, uh, Envelope Filter, Distortion Fuzz. Yeah. So as far as your Distortion Fuzz setup, yeah. I always find this interesting because uh, people use them for such different things. What 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 is your... Distortion fuzz sort of is it a, a thing where you uh, where you combine them or you use them for wildly different things or I combine them when it's time for like uh, like the end all like this is the heaviest shit ever or it's like uh, the Larry Graham craziness or like like you know since you've been gone live yeah, yeah. I might mash both of those down yeah but for the most part uh, t- for me that feels a little too out of control right yeah. like almost like those old school like big muff pedals where yeah. it's like wow yeah yeah um. I think the the distortion can be really cool uh, for a cut. It it uh, especially if you have like a, a 808 bass underneath something. The distortion tends to, at least in my setup, and I'm sure if someone else has figured out how to not do this, it tends to thin the sound just a little bit. Mm-hmm. You get more of that razory kind of um, attack. Uh, so that that has its place. And then the fuzz, I generally like it to be a really wide warm sound mm-hmm. where you almost can't tell that you can't hear the little um you can't really hear the distortion as much as you can just feel the rumble of it you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying yeah and then fuzz is cool because you can play that on funk you know like you mentioned larry graham um justin meldel mm-hmm. johnson like a lot of uh he's a killer like funk fuzz player pino um yeah and then i use the the chorus i like to put uh i love to layer that with synth stuff because I use a very low, a slow sweep on that, so it's barely detectable, but you can tell something about it has really spread out, you know, uh, as far as, like, frequency range. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Uh, I use the um, my envelope filter when I 
am trying to be uh, Derek Hodges from uh, uh, Glasper's band. Yeah. <laughs> I love that dude's playing. And we're actually only a few degrees separation away from because of my cousin. So I'm sure some someday I'll meet him and have to own up to the fact that I'm a fanboy, but he's he's dope. So if I'm doing like Neo Soul kind of vibe, I'll, I'll hit that. Um, and then Octaver, really, I've had a tough time getting that to translate through a TV set. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm still figuring out where I'm putting that. Yeah. It's to me the the problem with most octaverse was that through a bass rig like a four ten or something or, or through headphones they sounded great but through a PA right or through tiny television speakers yep. maybe yep uh, they 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 just don't cut enough right and uh, I'll be using an MXR one I love the MXR and they put the little mid boost on it that's smart. And that mid-boost, to me, make it sound a li- not warm enough through a bass rig, but all of a sudden it's finally detectable through a PA. Okay, so it cuts better in, yeah. in a, either a big array speaker or a smaller speaker. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, And that's interesting, too, now that we talk about the TV bass thing. I mean, I've always, because of my dad was like an audiophile hi-fi nerd growing up, okay. so even before other people ran their TV through their home stereo, my right. dad was always like into yeah. that so yeah. ever since i was like 10 years old i've had a little cheap home stereo to run the tv through so i could hear the bass mostly right. I, I do the same thing yeah. but most people still watch tv through tv speakers yeah. and uh roger sadowski years ago installed a little preamp he was working on at the time called the willy preamp that's now in the willy sadowski oh, cool. model yeah. and it's basically an 800 hertz boost uh. which to me sound like Sounds like ass now and then. Like it's not like cardboard box. <laughs> yeah, like it's not cool. But Will was like, "Well, that's what you need for TV speakers." I, dude, I I totally get that now. Um, even after doing the show, I think we're coming up on our <coughs> as far as taping, we're coming up, we're somewhere in the '60s now. Um, so I'm by no means like you know a seasoned TV vet, but I've started to learn very quickly like what you can and can't get away with on the show. And you're right, you do need that mid presence. Um, to cut, I mean, they mix the show down several. Uh, it goes through several different rounds of mixing, but I know one of the final ones is just through laptop speakers because they need to see if it's going to pop on like Instagram and on mm-hmm. through people's TV sets. <clears throat> so yeah, we're all learning a lot about um, you know what we want to send to these six different people that are mixing the show. <laughs> yeah, you, you lose a lot of control over your sound after it leaves you. So like for me. It's a matter of making the smartest choices, and I'm still learning, man. There's, there are there are karaoke covers I go back and listen to where I'm like, I should not have hit that octave pedal. You felt so good in the moment, you know, but then bass just disappears. So, still uh, still humbly growing in that in that area for sure. <laughs> well, what a wonderful uh, what a wonderful opportunity a show that airs that often. Yeah. To you know, it's not like if you play the Grammys or the AMAs or whatever, it's once yeah, a year. You right. want to nail it. On Kelly's show, like you said, you can go, oh, that tone wasn't great yesterday, but right. it's not like you're not doing it again tomorrow. And we do two a day for the most part, sometimes yeah. sometimes three a day. So yeah. so you get very quickly you get another shot. And I love that about the show. It's, you know, so we've talked about ADHD, mental health-wise. I've also been a, a, a lifelong anxiety sufferer, have several diagnoses there as well. And I'm always very open about it. But uh, for a guy like me with, A, a problem focusing, and B, usually being scared shitless like the tv show is a real challenge because uh you're on it's a big it's a high risk high reward type of um job and i mean i'm not gonna lie to you like the first month or two of that gig i there's a spot on the top of my head where i was picking my own hair out i was like going nuts you know it was just the stress was overwhelming and then as i like started being a lot more mindful about it and trying to actually apply a lot of the things from trail running and from that practice and trying to trying to live in the moment um i've learned how to really fine tune that focus to where we've done if we've done 60 episodes that means 60 karaoke covers and that means uh, you know who knows how many bumpers on and off between segments and i've had to go fix one thing and it was because we were covering Katy perry and i didn't want her band guys to hear it and think and it wasn't even a mistake it was like a it was supposed to be out on beat four or something and i left on beat three. Oh yeah just a cutoff it was a cutoff thing yeah. and i was like i just i don't want them to hear that and it not be like airtight so i went and, and fixed it so essentially i'm saying there have it's not there haven't been mistakes they've either been indetectable i've listened back to them and said this isn't worth it you know uh no one else is going to hear this or notice it or it's been 
flubbed in just the right way to where, <laughs> you know, yeah. us bass players, we know how to like pull off a note so quick. Yeah. You hear it and you go, not that one. And then a millisecond later, it's almost like a trill yep. or something. Yep. Um, so I'm really proud of that. So like with the problems focusing and, and with, you know, or especially early on when we started being pretty nervous before we went on each time to now it's like, all right, it's the challenge of it. Like, all right, let's go. It's another day. Like we got two songs up, like, you know, you're either going to rock or you're going to suck. And I, I usually end up rocking, which I'm very proud of. Yeah. <laughs> do you use an amp on the show at all? Like I do. In the... Do you get to have, I, I would assume, because it's a live room, you get to have a, is it mic'd or DI'd, or do, is the sound of the amp there on, on the on the broadcast, or is that just for your entertainment? That's mostly for my, that's mostly for me and the, the show audience. They can still, because it's an uh, omnidirectional wave, they get a lot of, yep. of that amp. Yep. It's not crazy loud. I think I get away with it being a little louder than some people would, yes. which I'm fairly pleased with. Um, so that's an Aguilar uh, uh, AG700. Mm-hmm. And that's going into uh, it's a I play a two twelve enclosure. Mm-hmm. I love twelves. I think as far as a speaker goes, you get a little bit of that roundness from the fifteen, and you get a little bit of that snap from a, a ten inch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I, but no, it's not. I, it could be mic'd, and I've never noticed it. But I don't think it's mic'd. Yeah. But it is visible, which I'm very proud of. You know. So and the that, last the last piece then for for all the nerds, which is many of us. Uh, we're bases. all nerds. <laughs> yes, basses. We've talked about the pedals and the oh, amps yeah. and the synth rig yeah. and the DI you use. Yeah. But basses, I I always see you as a sunburst maple neck P guy. Yeah, that's uh, that has taken on the nickname the heart bass. Yes, uh, that one. Yeah, so I used uh, I actually there used to be like four different heart basses. I you know when I was coming up, I got into West West Montgomery um, as a jazz guitar player. And uh, he always had a heart on his instruments. And I don't know why I started doing that, but once I started, it just became a trend. And so uh, I actually switched the pit guard on that, that P you're talking about recently where it doesn't have the heart on it anymore, but we still call it the heart bass. Mm-hmm. And Lester, uh, the drummer, has a joke where like, he doesn't know who I am unless I'm playing that bass. So That's like, great. Right, which is so funny because I'll, I'll bring that one down downstairs to the set, and he's like, oh, here we go, man. We're about to kill. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, he's like, I don't even know who's been playing with me this last few episodes, uh, which is funny. But no, actually, I, I, I think the P bass is the is just – that just is what electric bass guitar is. <laughs> yeah. It's a P bass. Yeah. I love – jazz comes in handy a lot, you know, and there are other great – I love my Jack Cassidy Epiphone. Um I have a Duesenberg Beatles copy that I've loved. I think it's way superior to to any um, Hoffner. Hoffner by yeah. far. I play the Epiphone copy of it, yeah. three hundred dollars, yeah. and I prefer it to the Hoffners as well. Yeah. The Hoffners, no shade to Hoffner. They, since since the Beatles explosion and all that, they started off, I believe, more as a almost like toy instrument, right? Yeah. And then they started making some more pro models of it, but the neck doesn't taper. It's very strange to play. Yeah. Um, but all that is to say that, in g- generally speaking, 90% of the time, I'll opt for the P-Bass. It's just, it feels like me, it sounds like me, I want it to be warm and have that wide frequency range. So, I think I saw a picture of you, maybe on, I might be wrong, this is very foggy, and again, I'm attention crazy as well, yeah. but I think I saw a picture of you playing some Thunderbird-looking thing yeah. on Kelly's tour. Yeah, it was a T-Bird, um, that was for the Encore set. So we, I, I, don't, I can't remember how, how many songs that was. It was like four, four songs maybe. But uh, I would come, we would come back out in these big dramatic uh, musical theater costumes. Kelly's a big musical theater fan, and, and uh, she had worked on The Greatest Showman movie and also on Hamilton mm-hmm. soundtrack. So we came out in these like uh, 19th century, you know, I don't know how you describe it, almost like... Uh, there, uh, there, there, there's lots of ruffles. I say that <laughs> lots of yeah. ruffles and and buttons, like Revolutionary War kind of stuff. Yep. And uh, and yeah, the I, Epiphone was kind enough to uh, to lend me that that T bird, and it's a it's actually the nicest instrument I own. I think that's valued at like four thousand dollars or something. Which I don't. I, I'm fine sharing this. I don't really play expensive instruments. I just I a little bit more of the belief that the tone, either it's quirky and it's fun and it's up to you to make it cool. Or it, it does kind of come from your fingers and the way you touch the instrument. 
there's obviously that's a generalization. There's just some really shitty instruments out there that are almost unplayable. But yeah. uh, for the most part, I play the mid range, you know, whatever American standard Fender and um, even the 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 heart bass I was talking about is a it's a Fender Road Worn P. A lot of people think it's a, a actual vintage, yeah, but it's just a relic. I think it cost me eight hundred bucks. Yeah, um, but the T Bird, uh, I started pulling that out for the encore set. It was like I, sh- I guess I should play this, and it just made sense. We're playing "Since You've Been Gone" and "Stronger" and these these big pop rock tunes, and it just was perfect for that. I don't, I need to play it more. It's sitting on set right now, and I haven't played it on the show yet, but I need to. Cool. So, are you? Uh, obviously, I know you as sort of like a fingerstyle guy, but mm-hmm. are you? Do you do you use a pick a lot on? Kelly's oh, all the, all the time. I figured because that's yeah. such a. Yeah, I, I mean, that, and that's the the other thing is like I learned. Um, I grew up in a soulful house, so neo-soul and hip-hop and R&B, funk, all that stuff comes, comes extremely naturally to me, and I love playing it, and I think I'm very good at it. I'm more of a rock player. That's where I'm coming from for the most part. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, as far as what I grew up listening to, it was, it was Green Day, Foo Fighters, you know, Killers, all that stuff, Radiohead. Um, and you said, you said metal, too, in oh, the yeah. early 2000s, which is interesting because I'm also a... Uh, soul and metal guy. Yeah, you can you can have it all. That's what yeah. I love about music, man. Is like, yeah. uh, I can't remember if it was Charlie Parker or uh, I'm gonna or Duke Ellington. I'm gonna I'm gonna botch this, but or it might have been Louis Armstrong. Music is either good or bad. Yeah. Right. And that that itself is subjective. So uh, I apply the same rules. I will listen to absolutely anything if it's cool, uh, if it, if it moves me at all. Yeah. So the stuff I put on when I'm cooking at night can range from very dense. Coltrane and Kamazi Washington to like Beck and Casey Musgraves and like it's all over the place. Yeah. If it's good, it's good. But uh I mean, we have so much uh in common as far as and I moved to Nashville in two thousand. I was there until two thousand and eighteen. Okay, yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, we're close so, in range. So, so I saw it go from, you know, the big cow town and mm-hmm. you know, musically, but you know, I came up on on metal and mm-hmm. Neo Soul, mm-hmm. largely, mm-hmm. and every country gig, unless somebody told me to not do that, mm-hmm. I felt like I took those two mm-hmm. things with me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you had some country gigs mm-hmm. that were where that would have been an asset. Like you played with James Otto for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's to me, that type of country yeah. is, is the kind of thing that I think would blow many people's minds because. It's super. It's it's vibing on a lot of old school soul for me. Man, big time. Otto, who's actually still a great friend of mine, is um, a huge soul head. I mean, huge. Otis Redding, like Stax Records, all that stuff. He's also a huge country fan, and it makes a lot of sense that he. Um, I think um, uh, what's the blind dude? Uh, Ronnie Millsap mm-hmm. was a huge influence on him. Ronnie was sort of like the king of country soul, mm-hmm. and Otto very much, you know, had every ounce of that he was such a soulful singer and such a, a soulful songwriter that i got to play a lot of pino licks on that gig that probably didn't belong there but they felt right yeah same thing with billy currington um that was uh, i was with billy for three years and uh billy has an extremely soulful voice his is paired with a little bit more uh, before he got into like bigger pop country hits of the last like five six years he uh, was known for for more trad country country soul kind of a lot of like country soul ballads and stuff so that stuff was was super fun for me to play because uh i got to pull all those influences like my whole when i earlier when i said that sometimes it felt like country was like playing a role Mm -hmm. there were gigs like that but there were also other gigs where you know if you had a a black dude with the family that's all from memphis what would that sound like playing country music and that's what i tried that's all i did was just what felt natural to me you know Ooh, my daughter has a uh, zebra. Is the zebra roaring like a lion? Rawr. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I've but I've always done that. Even with Kelly um, and Katie, like in the middle of a pop rock tune, if there's a, a lick that has a little bit of shake on it that sounds like more something Pino would play, as long as it feels right, I'll, I'll go for it. I I try to with most musical directors. Um, I have about an eighty twenty rule. Where especially when you first come in, that might even be ninety ten. But I want to play the music almost verbatim, of course with my own feel and inflection. But twenty percent of that, usually in the the golden ratio, you know, like the back half of the song, the back third of the song is usually when I'll let a little flare come through. Mm-hmm. And 
for the most part, most musical directors I've, I've worked with have no issues with that. Because it feels right. It's the right arc. You're playing what people expect, mm-hmm. and you're playing it well, and it feels good. And then towards the end of the tune, you're stepping out a little bit because everything, you want the song to just grow and grow and grow. So um, I don't even know how we got into that. My kids are running in and out. <laughs> no, Still happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. So four months in L.A., and you, uh, as far as your schedule, Television tapings is do is there a, is there a let up in your schedule anytime soon or is, are you just? I'm actually in it right now. We had a, uh, I think I had nine days between the, our last episode and I'm I'm actually subbing to go do a Katie run coming up uh, mm-hmm. later this week or next week. So uh, yeah, this nine day break you're seeing me at the most rested I've been in in easily five six months because before the show started was the move to get here and before that was uh my first few runs with katie and before that was kelly's uh uh, tour big tour so basically since my son was born in january of sorry february of uh 2019 i've been going like wall to wall which again you won't i think you're allowed to acknowledge that you're tired without complaining is that Fair. Yeah, and if tiredness comes from an overwhelming amount of work, yeah, the type of work you've been trying to get forever, then for your whole life, yeah, yeah, you spent, I've spent my whole career. That's exactly right. I spent my whole career trying to get exactly where I am right now, and that's why I don't complain. I can be tired, and I can be at times stressed out, or uh, um, you know, but all that comes with a, a lot of deep fulfillment. Like none of that would be possible without my wife, uh, who takes care of these kids that you guys are hearing. Yeah. Like, you know, because a lot of times with the TV show, these are, it's not uncommon at all to have 12-hour days. You know, a lot of them are, um, with the commute, I would say exact, right at 12 hours most of the time. I leave at about 7 and I get home about 7. Where do you guys uh, uh, shoot? Burbank or? Yeah, in Burbank. Okay. Uh, uh, Universal City. Okay. Yeah. So that's not too horrible of a commute from here. It depends on the time of day, but yeah. at the worst, an hour. Yeah. Um, at the best, <laughs> 90, 17 minutes it's yeah. so ridiculous yeah the uh, how different those drives can be but i'm getting used to it i do actually get a lot done while i'm driving yeah i do like i'll be telling siri to pay bills and all kinds of stuff yeah that's driving in la i've i've, I've killed that by getting more into podcasts because podcast yep uh when i listen to music and songs are three to four minutes long mm-hmm. i can re- really feel how many songs i listen to between say Hollywood in my house if I go right. play down there at night and then I go oh I just listen to 14 songs going home right but if you turn on a podcast you just disappear yeah. into a conversation and then you're home love so it so it's been my secret weapon dude uh, podcasts or uh, or just old school phone calls since I'm so new here I have a lot of friends back home that I miss so I'll, I'll actually I go through a rotation of my buddies and I'll just call them up and we'll just chat like and usually that gets me home it's like yeah. four, about 45 minutes well that's wonderful so it works out well well, I'm I'm stoked. We're about at an hour, so I'm stoked that you were able to carve out some time, man. We oh, really absolutely, appreciate dude. it. Uh, it's like I said, it's my honor. Anytime someone wants to hear me speak, I think that's so bizarre that I'm like, I'll just go along with it. <laughs> well, in addition to you having a television gig, which I think uh, we've had a lot of guests on here that have done plenty of tonight shows and all that, but to go and do it for a day job, we haven't had a talk show bass player on here, which has been. Uh, a thing I've been wanting, and now yeah. you are a talk show bass player, which is an awesome, yeah, awesome title to have. Yeah, yeah, and we're and we're the only band in daytime, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so and we're they're trying to we're trying to find a name right now. Oh yeah. But so like, yeah, we want to be the 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 daytime roots, you know. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> and and I'm very selfish with these podcasts. I I only get people that I personally want to hang out with, oh, even man. if I wasn't recording. And sure, sure. You and I always ran into each other. Yeah. On oh tour yeah. Or. I remember uh, Welcome to 1979, that studio. The studio, I yeah. I ran into you there. And, yep. But we never got the chance to sit down and, and talk much. So. Not much, no. We would have, like, uh, you know, kind of in-and-out conversations, but I always thought yeah. you were a really cool dude and, and loved your playing, by the way. Oh, um, thank you, man. And just, uh, yeah, a stand-up human being. In fact, the only podcasts I've done have been with really stand-up people, so I'm going to try to keep that. There's a high bar now. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, thanks again. We'll, 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 we'll talk to some kids here because they feel like talking. Yeah, Winnie, you want to say bye-bye? <laughs> Bye bye. Or you can go, ah. <laughs> so that's how we, get, we turn yeah, the mics on. We turn two mics towards the child and they get quiet. <laughs> We're onto something. Yeah, All exactly. right. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning into the Lowdown Society once again. And thank you so much to Kyle and his entire family for letting him 
have the hour with us. Again, as I've said before, I don't think there's any other place where you can hear bass players that are on gigs at this level talk for such an extended period of time. And I'm supremely thankful to everyone for listening and telling their friends about this podcast. I have quite a few exciting episodes recorded both in L.A. and Nashville coming up in the next few weeks. And I will try to edit them and get them out as soon as possible. So as usual, keep it funky, keep it low, and I'll see you right back here on the Lowdown Society Podcast. Thank you.